Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reads. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reads to discriminating double read players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reads has recently expanded to sell double read tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable read-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. little silly to be recording this when I'm going to see you in like 30 hours, but we have a schedule to keep to and we are professionals. The dish has to be dished. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited to see you. We are going to uh, Flint, Michigan in about 30 hours and yes. we are going to play a recital at the First Presbyterian Church of Lint with our dear friend Carl Angelo, and we are so excited. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, we're playing the Peter Hope Trio, which we've not played together before, and the Grand Val, which we play all the time because Jeffrey Lyman recommended it on this podcast. So we got on Carl's radar because he's an avid listener of the podcast, and we're playing suggested repertoire. It's just kind of a Double read dish centered recital extravaganza. <laughs> Eleganza extravaganza. <laughs> so, what are we dishing about today? Well, I wanted to talk to you about this experience that I had recently. A few weeks ago, my colleague Kim Willie and I did a joint studio class, Oboes and Bassoons, and we invited um, somebody from who is, she's doing her PhD in counseling psychology, and she came to talk to us about self-care because I have uh, noticed that undergraduates are extremely stressed out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've noticed this, Jackie, <laughs> but they're extremely stressed out. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to help give them tools. I am not a psychologist or a counselor or a therapist in any way. So I often feel deficient when 
you know, they come in and they have all of these stressors and uh, pressure on them, on their schedules, on their time. And anyway, it was a really helpful talk. And she had some really good points that I would like to share with you and our listeners. Uh, One of them was the BASE approach to self-care, B-A-C-E. So the B stands for body care, A is for achievement, C for connectedness, and E for enjoyment. So if you can find activities that incorporate one or more of those uh, different categories, then you're fulfilling those aspects of your, you know, experience that need fulfilling. For example, if you and a friend take your dog for a walk, you are experiencing connectedness, enjoyment, and body care. That's awesome. And her idea is that you should get in each of these base elements every day for self-care. Yeah, it can be a little more flexible. Like if you if you reflect on it and you think, okay, well, I have been extremely high achieving lately. I've been practicing mm. my butt off, but my body care has been pretty low. I haven't been sleeping enough. Then maybe tonight you focus a little bit more on the body care and on enjoyment. Perhaps you take a bubble bath with a good book. Okay, so it's a way to keep life in balance, like kind of to check in on yourself and see how balanced these things are. Exactly. I'm doing kind of my own personal inventory right now as we speak, like I'm checking in with each of my elements. Well, I was just thinking like, (laughs) oh, with my running, I've been doing pretty good with body, but I definitely don't enjoy it. So (laughs) that's just one. (laughs) Well, it probably ticks achievement also. Oh, it definitely does. Okay, that's good. Uh, But no, I love Mm -hmm. that you bring up this idea of how we can best serve our students and what resources we can bring to our students because, you know, as applied teachers, often we are our students' home base and we are the place Mm -hmm. that they feel safe. And I, like you, have no training in counseling or in helping to Mm -hmm. navigate a lot of the things that my students are dealing with. And I want to do right by them. I don't always know how. So I just really applaud you for starting those conversations. Can I tell you another strategy that she told us about? Oh, yeah. You'll like this one. It's about lists. We all make lists, right, of all the things we have to do. And sometimes those lists can be extremely long. So she talked about categorizing what? Why are you laughing? I was just thinking how today I put on my to-do list to make a to-do list, did so, and then crossed it off the original to-do list. Yes, this is relevant to me. Please continue. Okay, so she introduced these categories. So we have A, B, C, D, and E. And what you're going to do is for each item on the list, you are going to categorize it as one, you know, one or the other. So your A items are uh, things that if you don't complete them, there will be significant consequences. Okay. Your B items, mild to moderate consequences, if not completed. 
C items, no consequences if not done. D means delegate. I love that one. I want to make everything D. <laughs> e, eliminate item for the time being. She connected it to the idea of perfectionism and how perfectionism can often lead to procrastination, which is something that I am extremely familiar with (laughs) and how people who tend to be perfectionists and procrastinate tend to get a lot of their C items done. Mm. Like during finals week, your dorm or your apartment is the cleanest it's ever been. Right. Because it's so much easier to clean than it is to do the things that actually matter. Mm Mm-hmm. Not that clean doesn't matter, but you know what I mean. So to actually rank your items into like, this needs to get done, no exceptions today, or this probably doesn't need to get done today is actually very helpful. Yeah, because there have definitely been times where I have had something that's kind of a monkey on my back and I will maybe even subconsciously avoid tackling that item on my to-do list because I know how long I've avoided it. Coping mechanism. Yes. (laughs) And it's like, oh, if I start working on this, I'm going to be confronted by how much there is to do and how much I have not done. And uh, mm-hmm. look at this other thing. I could just do that real quick and cross it right on off. I think I'll be Look doing at this that. easy little C item. I'll do that one first. Let's exactly. get warmed up with a C item. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the brain, what is it? Dopamine that when you mm-hmm. cross something off, when you have an achievement, we get a little shot of dopamine. So we're actually hardwired oh, yeah. to do those C items that will take less time and effort. Hence putting make a to-do list on your to-do list. <laughs> I feel very attacked. I will not stand for this. <laughs> I actually learned a lot from that talk and... um And I recommend that if you are in a position where you have access to a psychology department or uh, therapy sessions or counseling through your university or through your work or whatever it happens to be, that you seek out those resources because they can actually be pretty helpful. Yeah. This all reminds me of something that I've been endeavoring on lately, endeavoring on lately, pardon me. Um, which is a meditation practice. This is all kind of a, a long story that we don't necessarily need to get into. But over the summer, I had a realization that regarding um, stress and performance anxiety and self-care, I tended to be um, full of peaks and valleys. And if I had something coming up that was huge, so in the case of this summer, it was performing at IDRS, I would all of a sudden like realize I was dealing with all this emotional stuff. And I would quickly try to find resources to address the problem. And then once the big performance is over, I'd kind of settle into the comfort. And because I wasn't experiencing the feelings, I wouldn't work on them. And that was kind of a pattern that upon reflection, I realized and went, oh man, you know, I have something big coming up. I'll throw myself on the altar of Don Green or the talent code or whatever mm-hmm. it is, but I won't maintain that mindset. Mm. And so this summer, I really tried to address that. And going forward, I have 
And one of the things that I felt like the universe was just kind of continually putting on my radar through um, friends or colleagues that I really respect was mindfulness meditation. And one of my very close friends, Laura Medisky, started this specific practice of the 10% Happier app. And she was telling me about it and all the changes it's made in her life. And I thought to myself, well, I'm doing good though. I don't need that. And then I thought back to my summer epiphany and was like, <laughs> well, that you should still explore this thing. Maybe I don't have to like become a believer or anything, but at least explore the thing because I'm trying to maintain and not just solve when there's a problem. And so I started this, um, it, there are essentially courses in mindfulness meditation, and then there is a podcast associated with it. And I've been doing both of those things on the daily. And one of the things that what you were talking about reminded me of is on one of the um, interviews, a guest they had talked about this notion of um, how we can say no and how we can set mm -hmm. boundaries. And one of the things of the the list that you're talking about that kind of occurred to me was it was kind of framed in terms of immediacy. This has to get done. This has to get done. It's pressing um, or there are consequences. And I thought to myself, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of my non-negotiables don't have tangible consequences. And then I thought, yes, they do. They're just internal. And that mm -hmm. that needs to be just as important as the consequences that are external. She talked about saying, I don't instead of no, or I can't. Um, so something like, oh, I don't miss my morning run and help turn morning run from an item that might be a C on the list, but internally it should be an A. You know, um, right. it is something that I need and want to do or, or now for me, meditation and all the things that that's brought into my life. And that when putting things on our daily to-do list, things for ourselves and self-care can be one of those things that goes on as a non-negotiable. And uh, so anyway, that's it, it's all kind of reminding me of this. And uh, mm -hmm. if any of the listeners are curious about mindfulness meditation and the journey that I've embarked on, we don't have to get into all that. It's a very big topic and I'm certainly not an expert on it, but I'm happy to talk to anybody who's curious about it because I'm reaping a lot. I'm very happy with the process. What you said actually reminds me of something else that the clinical psychologist said in this talk was it's more important to identify barriers than benefits mm. for the things that you're, that you should be doing, but don't do. Mm -hmm. For example, it's easy to say, I need to eat healthier because it's better for my body. I feel better. Like identifying the benefits doesn't make you do something research shows, mm. but identifying the barriers, this is keep okay, these three or four things are keeping me from eating better. And then you address those things. Is cheese being tasty one of those things? Um, I really don't view cheese as a problem. <laughs> cheese is a solution. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> we all need a drug and my drug is cheese. I don't not eat cheese. <laughs> There are serious consequences if I don't have cheese. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> uh. 
don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Jenda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Jenda. Jenda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Jenda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, and it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender read knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student read knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your read making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender read knife, maintenance kit, read knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or read tool roll. Visit them now at gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. We are delighted to welcome to the podcast, Reed Message, Associate Professor of Oboe at the University of Georgia. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, pleasure and uh, looking forward to chatting with you all for the next uh, hour or so. Could we start off by having you tell us how you came to the oboe? Uh, as long as y'all don't mind me rambling for probably the next two hours, sure. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, I, I came to the oboe when I was about 13 years old. I had played uh, saxophone for two years prior. That was uh, the, the instrument that will not be named, I guess. Yeah, good choice. <laughs> but I came from kind of a musical family. Uh, no one was a professional musician, but grew up with you know, my dad loved music. And uh, he, he grew up in Pennsylvania, all-state choir, stuff like that. And he's just always kind of, I don't want to say pushed music, but it was just always present in our household. Uh, and I was always just kind of enamored with musical instruments. I remember like a, a Sunday mornings, I used to love going to church because I was, I was excited about what instrument was going to probably play with the choir that week, especially if they had like a soloist or someone there. Um, and I just kind of took to wind music. Uh, I played piano a little bit when I was younger. Um, and it, it didn't, uh, the piano and I were not meant to be. And I, I just always kind of loved wind instruments. So I picked up saxophone when I was in fifth grade, right before sixth grade to kind of get a jump start at it. And I, I, I stuck with it for about two years. And you know, there's nothing against saxophone when I say this, but it just didn't keep me interested. It, it was just not meant to be either. And my father just kind of recommended, what about the oboe? 
And I was about, you know, I was between seventh and eighth grade, I think. And I, my first thought was, well, what the heck is an oboe, first of all? <laughs> and my dad uh, brought up some music, let me listen to some, uh, some recordings, you know, found some pieces. I remember the first piece I ever listened to orchestral-wise an oboe that I remember was Brahms 1. And I was just, you know, just blown away. And then, then I saw a picture of it, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get my, my butt kicked at school if I play that. <laughs> I mean, I'm already in, you know, coming out of seventh grade. I don't even think I was five feet tall yet, five foot tall yet. And so oboe was just going to add to that image I already had. But, you know, I, uh, I went to it and uh, my first instructor was actually a clarinetist who played oboe on the side. And it just kind of, uh, I don't know, it just kind of took off for me. And uh, I ended up studying with another, or about a year later, moving uh, to an actual uh, professional oboist to study with uh, Jennifer Sperry of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I came to the oboe and I just kind of stuck with it. It just kind of always clicked, uh, for me and just felt like it was just felt right. I don't really know how else to kind of say, uh, you know, when something feels like it's right, you just, you go with it and you, you trust that instinct. How did you find your way to Curtis and studying with Williams? <laughs> so, uh, I never really knew what Curtis was until probably near the end of my junior year in high school. Um, you have to understand kind of my background, I guess. I grew up in farm country. Um, you know, the, my hometown, we had a Hardee's and a Piggly Wiggly. That was about it. So I didn't really know too much about the, uh, the, the schools and what was out there past what I was currently doing. My uh, teacher, uh, Jennifer Sperry, had mentioned to me, what are you thinking about doing as you uh, finish high school? Because she knew that I really wanted to go into music. Uh, like I said, music just kind of always spoke to me. It felt natural. And for the longest time, I just kind of thought, I'm going to go into music education. Uh, I'm going to, you know, my high school band director, Jeff Norman, was just an inspirational figure in my life. Um, and I kind of thought I'd do that. And I had met uh, Eric Olson at Florida State through a couple summers at Brevard. And I just kind of thought I'd go to FSU, get my music education degree. They have an excellent education program. And that would, you know, start my career. Uh, my teacher mentioned Curtis um, about towards the end of my junior year in high school. And my first question was, who's he? <laughs> I was like, is this, is this someone that I have to compete with? My, my, I, I pretty much, you know, like I said, I, I suffer from foot and mouth disease. My teacher just kind of put her hand on her forehead. It was just like, good grief. Curtis who? <laughs> yeah, that's, that, I mean, that's exactly what I thought. I, I was just extremely uneducated. I mean, on a side note, I remember the first time I went to Brevard, I, I skipped the first concert. I skipped the first concert, and I had a lesson the next morning with Eric Olson, and he's, he knew I wasn't there. And he goes, so how'd you like the concert? And I said, oh, it was an awesome concert. Gosh, you played so great. And he goes, what was your favorite piece? And I said, Brahms 5. Brahms 5? <laughs> and you know, he sat there, and he goes, can you hum a few bars? And I was like, oh crap i've just been caught um now granted i was i was 14 years old that is so funny but i mean it just kind of shows like i love i wouldn't change anything about where i grew up i love growing up kind of in the country it kind of it's a you know a definitive part of my life but i i was just ignorant to everything else out there uh when it came to a lot of classical music but you know my teacher explained where it was and i was like oh sure why not let's uh let's give it a shot so I, uh, 
coming out of high school, I auditioned at Florida State and I auditioned at Curtis, only two schools I looked at. I had had my audition at Florida State and had been accepted. To be honest, my parents had decked out everything. And, you know, we had the car decals, sweatshirts, everything. We were, we were all FSU at that point. I put the oboe down for about a week and I went to Disney World with my marching band. I came back from Disney World. Two days later, hopped in the car and I drove up to Curtis to take the audition. <laughs> and I, I mean, it's just like I've got to Philadelphia and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, it's just like a fish out of water. It was like, where are the cows? There's no cows. <laughs> But you know, the audition happened. I'd heard some of the stories about Curtis. And, uh, you know, I, I went in. The, they escorted me up to my room. Um, I warmed up. They told me, you're going to have 20 minutes. I was in there for about five minutes, and I got a knock on the door. And I was ready. I was like, uh, I thought I had 20 minutes. Is that with a girl before you? Her audition was less than a minute. She's gone. So <laughs> you're like, okay. <laughs> that was my introduction to, okay, you're going to go take your audition now. And I went in there, and, you know, when I say this, I say this in the most respectful way. The night before this audition, I didn't know where, I, I honestly didn't know where life was taking me. And, you know, everyone has their views and their beliefs in life. I come from a Christian background and I just, I sat there and I prayed that night before that, you know, God's will would just kind of take place here because I didn't know what to do. And that audition to this day, as far as like where I was ability wise, was the best audition I ever gave. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that audition lasted for almost 50 minutes. Wow. I left there. I remember leaving and just said, you know, I told my dad, look, whatever's going to happen, it's in God's hands at this point. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. If I end up at Curtis, this is awesome. But at the same time, I'm going to be so happy if I get to go to FSU as well. And I left just feeling really much at peace. And, you know, about two weeks later, I found out that I'd been offered a spot. And at that point, I kind of like started getting scared because you know, I've heard all the stories. But uh, that's that's really how I ended up ended up at the school. Uh, uh, it's just a, a strong sense of faith that led me there and helped me persevere through four years of, of very hard and challenging studies. That is an amazing story. It really speaks to letting go and trusting in your own abilities and trusting that what is meant to happen is going to happen. Once you got there, what were some of the best things that you learned from this really incredible, intense, elevated musical environment? Well, I, one thing that I, I uh, learned when I first got there was, you know, the, within a day of being there, I think we went into our first orchestra rehearsal and I mean, I played in a very nice youth symphony. I, I get, I, my parents made sure that I had as many opportunities as I could possibly have when I was younger. Um, you know, like I said, my, my private teacher lived in Charlotte. That was a two and a half hour drive every Saturday for my dad and I. Um, so I, I had all these experiences, which really helped and opportunities. But I think, you know, I, I'm used to, I was used to coming into an orchestra. Okay. It's the first rehearsal. We're going to piece it together. Everyone's gonna, you know, we're going to all be, you know, really tight and good friends and you know everyone's going to be respectful of each other uh and everyone is always respectful but i came into that rehearsal like i'd come out of you know a youth orchestra rehearsal i you know i kind of looked at my part but i had not really studied the part and the first eye-opening experience to me was every single person here knows this piece inside and out and i feel like i'm just now starting to learn it and that was one of the the first things that like i said opened my eyes i just 
wow, we're in the big leagues now. This is not high school youth symphony anymore. This isn't uh, let my teacher spoon feed it to me. I've got to take initiative now and, and, and actually be very uh, forthright in creating more knowledge for myself from what's in front of me. I can't count on other people to just always tell me what's going to happen. I think the other thing was too, just the friends that I made and listening to their backgrounds. Uh, so many people just had so much more knowledge of the classical world than what I had. Uh, like I said, I keep using the word ignorant, and I don't mean that in a, a derogatory way. I just had so much to learn. I didn't think of music that way growing up. But I had a very good social circle at the school, uh, friends that I'm still very tight with. Ironically, I didn't hang out with wind musicians very much. Both of my friends were double bass players and brass players. <laughs> In addition to it being a new environment musically, I would imagine it was also just culturally and mentally and emotionally a very new environment. And you've talked about feeling less experienced. And I wonder if you had any times of feeling overwhelmed or out of place in your new environment and how you navigated that, if so. Uh, baby steps. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I said, uh, it was all very eye-opening my first my first couple of weeks there. A big city, you know, uh, it, it definitely was a, an intimidating environment. Uh, my apartment that I lived in, because we didn't have dorms. I think Curtis now had a dorm and even a cafeteria situation. But you lived on your own. And so when I moved up to Philadelphia, I was still 17 years old. And I was living in Center City, Philadelphia by myself in a little brownstone apartment. And it's just, there's nothing that can really prepare you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, it's dark outside. I got to get home. I can't be out past dark. You know, <laughs> I just, I blame movies and television for that. Uh, <laughs> I found, I found, I found Philadelphia actually feel pretty safe the entire four years I was there. But the, uh, it was just trying to learn how to manage time um, for me. And I remember getting a phone call. Someone said, well, we're having a coaching tonight. And I was like, after dark? Um, <laughs> really? We're having a coaching after dark, and uh, the, it was with a clarinetist, uh, Anthony Giliotti, uh, who was on a chamber coach for my first two years there. And, you know, I was just like, he, the clarinetist told me and said, don't be late for this. So, so I, I was like, okay, I'm coming. Um, but it was definitely trying to just navigate, learning my way around, you know, uh, where I grew up, it was all back roads, and, you know, there were like two or three highways. Now I'm in a city where, you know, good grief, there's uh, over a hundred streets going every direction and you've got to figure out how to navigate and get where you're going. But you, you pick up on it quick. I would say it took me about four four months to really get comfortable with that. And and like I said, having a good social circle is always great, you know, because when you're with your friends, when you're with people that you, you trust and, and, and uh, you know, believe in, you're, you're more comfortable as you get acclimated to that new environment as well. Right. Has your experience um, going to the big city, going to an intense musical environment for the first time affected how you approach your undergraduates who um, maybe perhaps some of them are first generation college students and um, are not used to coming to an environment where the expectations have been raised, you know, outside of high school how do you approach those students and mentor them in, in a way that um, that is actually helpful? 
Uh, I try to understand every single student that comes to work with me at Georgia or comes and works at me uh, or works with me at Masterworks during the summer. I try to look at everyone's, you know, not just their, their, where they're coming from, from a uh, from a living perspective, but, you know, their families, their beliefs as well. What, you know, how can I be as respectful towards them as possible while also trying to help push them to, you know, gain knowledge quicker than how I gained it, to be honest. You know, if I really dive into it, and I don't want to get too, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound negative, but I will say one thing. Four years at Curtis, I don't know if I'd be where I am today if I hadn't been there. I, I am very grateful for the knowledge and for the opportunities that came from going to the school. But there's also negative things that came from this school. And those things, and I can't speak to other people. I can only speak to myself and how, how it affected me. But because of the intensity, because of the, uh, the expectations, I changed in four years there. And to be honest, coming out of school, I, I knew, uh, or coming out of high school, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I had a drive for it. I had a passion for it. And I wanted to work with people. And like I said, it's just kind of trusting that you're going to get there one day. But I don't know if being a teacher sometimes is what I was being um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, polished for while I was up in Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, I was definitely being pushed more for a performance career. And that's great. And I, I, I get opportunities to perform and I love performing. Don't get me wrong on that. But because of what the way I was taught at the school, when I left the school, I had a very a negative and a competitive uh, way of teaching. My expectations for people were above what, what some people could, could meet. Mm-hmm. And it's because of what was expected of me. Mm-hmm. What was expected of me was if I didn't meet expectations, I was going to leave the school or I wasn't going to be staying at the school. Mm-hmm. And I was told that multiple times, as were other musicians there, I'm sure. But that was the expectation. I mean, I on a daily basis, I thank God every day that I had a good friend structure and I had good friends to help me. But on a daily basis, I was worried for four years. This might be my last day in this building. That seems like a lot of pressure. <laughs> it, it was a, a tremendous amount of pressure. But here's the thing. When I left there, those were my expectations for people who started studying with me. And let me just say this to anyone who's listening. That is not the right way to teach someone. You do not teach through fear. You teach through care, through love, through understanding. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be stern. That doesn't mean that you cannot be truthful with students. But Fear leads to hate. Hate leads to anger. What all that Star Wars, you know, mumbo jumbo stuff, you know? <laughs> um, and, but that's how I, that's, that's who I was when I left that place. And I know in my heart too, that's not who God wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. And what I've done now in my career, I thank the Lord every day that I ended up going back to FSU after Curtis to work with Eric for two, for five years on my master's and my doctorate. Because Eric, helped me become the person that I needed to be. Mm-hmm. He helped me um, change my views. He helped me maintain the expectations that I had for myself and helped me honestly regain some of my humanity. I would love to know more about that, about that journey for going from coming from a place of fear and anger and then looking at it from such a different perspective, you know, uh, an approach of love and teaching rather than fear. Well, and like I said, this is when I went to FSU, I had a very 
eye-opening experience with one of my students that was put under my tutelage while I was there. And I had a lesson where this person just, they did not play well. They forgot to bring reads to the lesson. Uh, they did not bring, they forgot their book. And I honestly lost my mind. Mm -hmm. I remember yelling at this student from my office. And I remember people opening up their doors to see what was going on. And this was, this was a, I guess you could say a coming to Jesus moment for me that this is not how you teach someone. And, you know, Eric understood the background that I had come from. He understood it because he had been through some of it too, I think. And it really told me, Hey, you've got, you've got to change who you are a little bit. You've got to be more um, understanding. You've got to respect people and lead by example. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've tried to do now with my students. I try to lead by example. Um, I try to, you know, what I ask of my students, I don't ask any less of them than what I ask of myself. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I have to be understanding because, you know, at University of Georgia, I think we are an amazing school of music with an amazing faculty, but we have 700 students and not every single student is trying to be a performance major. Right. Everyone's trying to, to do something different within the field of music. And you have to be respectful of that. I mean, I've seen people in the music therapy department literally bring joy and tears to uh, patients who are suffering from terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. And that to me is just as powerful as a performance on stage, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and you have to understand the work that's going into all these students, their academic careers outside of what they're doing in the lesson. And like I said, that doesn't mean I have lower expectations for anyone. But I try my best to help mold every student in the direction that they're trying to go in life. And this is one thing that I, Eric really showed me when I was at FSU, you know, because there were a, a variety of students, a variety of talent and a variety of personalities within the studio. Not everyone's trying to do the same thing. Right. And you have Thank to God. be understanding. Yes. 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 <laughs> Because uh, no one would have a job if everyone tried to do right. the same thing. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, he was just, I'd go out to lunch with him at the lessons. I would uh, sit and chat with him in his office uh, during non-lesson hours, chats on the phone, uh, just conversations to help me. And here's the thing. I didn't even realize it was happening. Right. I realized as I left FSU that, Eric's presence in my life had just helped remove a dark part of my life that I was, that was controlling me, to be honest. Um, and this is, this is kind of some deep conversation. And I, I really just want to iterate. I am not trying to speak ill of anything. This is just what stress did to me in my life. I had a very similar experience with Eric Olson, where I felt like I, when I came to him, I was a complete mess. And he put me back together in such a kind and compassionate way. The man is a saint and, you know, uh, there are very few people that I put in a tier of family, you know, I, but Eric is, I would always classify Eric as a, a mentor, a friend, and to a certain extent, a second father to me, if you would. Um, he's just, you know, I can chat with him on the phone at any time in life and just, there's no secrets. And I, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for, you know, for the, for the Lord putting someone like that in my life to help help put me back on the right track because that's what he did for me. I do not think I'd be doing what I'm doing right now had I not gone to FSU after my four years in Philadelphia. To be quite honest, I'm not even sure I'd probably be blind the elbow. 
but you know, that's I feel like this is all some really deep stuff that we're chatting about right now. <laughs> no, it's great because you know I think it's such a hard balance because we look at our students and they they are so stressed out and sometimes they're stressed out musically, but sometimes they're stressed out balancing music and school with what's going on in their personal lives and knowing how to delicately balance the, like you said, expectations, especially when they're trying to enter a world with more supply than demand, or if their dream is to do the same thing that a lot of other people are doing and and knowing that that comes with a certain amount of expectations, but also wanting to be um, nurturing and forgiving while maintaining those standards. So I wonder what that looks like in your own pedagogy now. How have you been able to pay it forward in like specific ways? How do you, what tactics do you utilize? As far as like my own students, I, I look at, like I said, what their, uh, what their goals are. And, you know, depending on what their major is too, I have a specific set of curriculum that I ask them to follow. Um, and, and my goal for each of these players or for each of these, uh, students, musicians, young musicians, whichever you prefer to call them, my goal for them is when they leave studying with me, they are the, they are playing at the best level that they are capable of playing at. You know, part of being a teacher is not necessarily every single student going out there and getting a job. Part of being a teacher is inspiring them to keep music in their life. Because let's be honest, everyone that goes into music is not going to major or not going to find a career in music, Mm -hmm. but they can still have music be part of their life. And I've had plenty of students who are doing extremely well professionally, uh, playing in orchestras, teaching at other colleges, teaching at high schools, middle schools, in therapy uh, departments, working at hospitals. I've got plenty of students doing all of this type of stuff. But I also have students, one of my, one, a student that I absolutely love dearly, um, she came to me and said, Dr. Message, I want to play oboe in college and I want to major in music, but my life dream is to be a veterinarian. And I sat there and said, okay, if you're going to work hard and you're going to work to do the very best that you can on oboe, I'll let you into the school and I'll give you a scholarship. And she came here four years and worked her butt off. And then she got into veterinary school after her undergrad. And I like to think that the, uh, the practice that she did, what music did for her in terms of being able to strategize her, her life, organize her classes, organize her practice time, organize her read making time, all of that built into creating the character that she has that has helped her achieve her dream of becoming a veterinarian. So I think it's just very important with, with what we do as teachers uh, to make sure that we're not just trying to make a student be ourselves. Hmm. You know, um, I don't expect any of my students to be me and do what I do, but I expect them to have knowledge and I expect them to be able to use what I've taught them and what they've worked on to better themselves for the future and for the people around them. So after grad school with Eric Olson, how did you find your way into higher education? Uh, well, I, like I said, uh, after meeting Eric at FSU, I mean, I know after high school, I had said that I kind of was just sitting there thinking I'm going to go into music education, but I was always enamored after going to Brevard. I went to Brevard 97, 8, 99, and 2000, pretty much every year of high school. I sat there and said in my back of my mind, you know, what this guy does is what I want in life. Mm-hmm. He's working at a university. Uh, people have to call him doctor. <laughs> um, he gets, he's performing with all these other, you know, with these organizations. He's teaching during the summer. I'm like, 
I want, that's what I want in life. That's what I want to do. And so in the back of my mind, that's kind of what I've always been striving for. Even when I went to Curtis, it was, it was in my mind. I'm going to try to do, I want to have, I don't just want a sugar cookie. I want the sugar cookie. I want the chocolate chip cookie. I want the sprinkled <laughs> cookie. I want to have my hand in every single cookie jar that's out there. And, you know, that just, that's when I uh, left Curtis, I, I thought long and hard about, well, do I hit the audition circuit and just focus on that? Which is, I think what I think my teacher wanted me to do, but I didn't. Um, uh, I remember being asked to stay a fifth year uh, at, at the Institute um, mainly because, you know, the Institute back then didn't like to bring in multiple students each year. And we had two people leaving the year I graduated. Uh, but I said, you know, I just felt like my time was at an end here and it was time for me to move on. And I was looking forward to going to Florida state. Um, I told him that, you know, my, my dream is to also work with people and be the best teacher I can be. And I need to go somewhere where I can learn how to do that. And thank, thank God I did. Because like I said, I don't, you know, I don't think back then no one, no one would want to socialize with me as a, as a teacher, but, mm. um, FSU and, and, and being in the studio there with Eric helped define and helped, uh, create the teacher that I am today, I think. But I was, uh, towards the end of my time in Tallahassee, I was just freelancing all over the place. I was playing, uh, with, uh, Iris orchestra, uh, up in Tennessee, uh, playing with Jacksonville, uh, going down to Miami pretty frequently, uh, just kind of going all over the place. Um, wherever I could, whatever would help keep a roof over my head, basically. Uh, and I just happened to, I had applied for a few jobs through the, the through the resume process. Y'all know how that process works. You send your stuff in and you just pray you hear back. Right. Um, and I, I had, uh, I had an opportunity for a one year position and it didn't work out. They, they ended up taking someone else. Uh, they weren't doing an interview. They were just going off of what was submitted paper wise. And yeah, it, it was kind of a bummer, but, uh, you know, like I said, I truly believe, and this is because of, uh, you know, just who uh, the path in life that I, I've, I've chosen. I, I believe God's got a plan for everyone out there. And sometimes you just have to wait. And that's the hardest thing to do. But I got a, I got a call from University of Georgia, one of the professors and said, hey, your name was given to us. And I'm like, uh, OK, um, we've got a one year position because our, our current oval professor is leaving. Um and we need to make a hire because classes start in two weeks. Mm. Um, so he, yeah, this person was like, uh, can you get us your materials? I was like, well, what all do you need? He says, we need everything that goes with the standard, you know, uh, application. We need your cover letter. We need three, three references. We need recordings. We need your CV. You know, I'm like, and how he's like, can you get it to us tonight? <laughs> so I got everything put together. I made some calls for some letters. I was like, can y'all write letters like right now? Um, and I remember I, I got a call the next day and said, Hey, we really like everything you sent in. Can you come up here to meet the Dean? So I drove up to UGA. It's about five hours from Tallahassee, uh, met the Dean. They said they were going to hire me, um, and said faculty meetings start in six days. Oh. <laughs> so I immediately while I was in Athens, went and looked for an apartment. Most apartment complexes want two weeks to turn an apartment over before they put a new tenant in it. Uh, this person said they would turn it over in four days. Uh, <laughs> signed my paperwork, drove back to Tallahassee, got a U-Haul, packed up everything, drove back to Athens, unloaded, drove 
back to Tallahassee, dropped off U-Haul, picked up all of my instruments, my car, and my cat, and drove back to Athens and went to a faculty meeting the next morning. Um, <laughs> that was my first day of work. <laughs> Were you flashing back like pressure, pressure, pressure? <laughs> the f- the fact that I can remember any of this, I mean, I, I just, it's one of those things where like, you just, you kind of go into a zone and you don't think anymore. You just, you just go and you do. And at the end of the day, you're like, what happened? Oh my God. I'd be so triggered. <laughs> but <laughs> That was, but you know, it was, that was a one year position and I, I, I loved it. And it was, it was everything I wanted it to be. Now I will say this. I know that, you know, every university, there's the stories of, you know, all the faculty that don't get along and all this stuff. And that's, that's, that's just life in general with anything you do. Mm-hmm. I'm very blessed at UGA because we have a faculty that really is strong uh, uh, in terms of not just ability, but in terms of just how we socially connect. Um, it's, it's just really cool to like, you know, have, have uh, the tuba professor talk, knock on my door and say, Hey dude, I'm going to grab lunch. You want to come? I mean, you don't see it happen very often. And it's just kind of cool to have camaraderie with the faculty here, but that's pretty much how I got the job at Georgia. Um, I ended up, it was a one year position and I had to, they were going to do a search for a full time. And I, I won another job during my year at Georgia, which is what helped uh, Georgia um, make me an offer because I had another offer from another Institute, which was, which was, uh, which was very good. Uh, that institute was up north, and I am not a cold weather person. Uh, I like I like the I like the sun and the fun. <laughs> so, I also love football. I'm a diehard football fan, and so oh, UGA, yeah. UGA works. <laughs> and now you get to do all of these things that you dreamed about. But the other part of that is now you have to do all these things that you dreamed about and you (laughs) have a family and, uh, you know, personal life, you have work, you have an active performance career. So how do you balance work and life, especially in light of your history in losing sight of the joy in the context of stress? How do you manage that now as a professional? I do what my wife says. (laughs) (laughs) Um, if you want the short and simple answer my wife tells no there is i I mean i do have a lot on my plate uh you know i I have a full load at georgia uh i i play with the iris orchestra i've been doing that since 2005 i've I've maintained that relationship and i i my heart is 100 percent with that orchestra and, and what that orchestra uh is built on foundation wise um, and I also have balanced uh, principal duties with the Hilton Head Symphony. Um, and so, you know, my, my travel time during the academic year, academic year is about 30 weeks. Between Iris and Hilton Head, I'm out of town 15 weekends a year. Mm. Uh, generally Thursday through Sunday or Friday through Monday uh, for shows and for concerts. Um, I'm very, very lucky uh, that I have a very understanding wife um, who who is also very artistic as well from the, uh, she's a, an amazing painter. Um, and so she understands what I do. Uh, she's, uh, she runs a, a branding uh, studio through the university of Georgia and, you know, does a lot of work with interior design and community branding. Um, so she travels quite a bit too. We, uh, so we, uh, we work really hard to balance when I'm out of town versus when she's out of town. And uh, 
you know, I, I practice, I have to make sure that I, I still practice. Um, uh, you know, when I was at, uh, when I was in high school, I was practicing probably about four to five hours a day. Um, and when I was at Curtis, I was doing somewhere close to probably six, seven hours a day with, you know, about two of those hours being read making. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would love to say that I practice six hours a day right now, <laughs> but I, that, that would be a, a, a bold faced lie. <laughs> With everything going on, uh, I have a pretty strict uh, regime that I try to follow. Uh, I make sure every day that I'm, I'm doing a good warm up, a good solid warm up. I spend about twenty to twenty five minutes on that. Uh, and if I know for one, if I know for some reason, okay, this day is going to be crazy with teaching, with traveling, with whatever, that twenty five minutes is the most important part of my musical day because it helps me. It it just kind of ground it grounds me for for what's coming up. Um, but what I try to do generally is. I practice about for an hour to an hour and a half twice a day in two 40 to 45 minute increments with about a 10 to 15 minute break between them uh, to kind of, you know, not get too overcome with everything, not get too fatigued as well. And then uh, I, I spend most of my evenings uh, in my man cave slash office slash whatever you want to call it these days working on reads and I, I work on reads probably about every single day from about 1030 at night till probably about 1231 in the morning. That's mm-hmm. um, just, that's part of the job. And it, it, that's when I find that I can focus on my read making. Uh, generally I finish my reads at my office uh, when I have some time uh, up at the, up at the university. Uh, but most of the time when I'm working on reads at home, it's more, it's not quite the finishing stages for me. A lot of times with travel, I take some reads to Tennessee or to Hilton Head and I, the reads I'm going to perform on, I end up finishing in the halls there where I'm going to play. But it's just, and I try to, I am not a creature of change. I'm a creature of habit. So I stick to my schedule every day. If I don't take like, you know, if I don't take my daily vitamin at the same time, something feels off. That's who I am. <laughs> but that's, that's how I've made, I, I kind of managed all this. And uh, I, I like to think that, you know, organization is just extremely important with a career like this. Uh, if you try to just kind of wing it every day, it doesn't work. You know, we, we, uh, my wife and I, you know, we, we have our, our lovely two-year-old Lowry and love her to death. Uh, she's, I honestly never thought I'd have kids, but when I had that, I had Lowry, I just, it changed my life as well. It was another, uh, another increase to, to the joy of what life can provide for you and, and, and bring you. Um, so I, I look forward to it, honestly, you know, I, I love practicing. I love oboe, but I also, that, that time of the day when I just get to spend with my daughter and watch the little mermaid for the 15th million time, <laughs> we're finally past frozen. Praise the Lord. Um, but, but you know, those, those moments I think also contribute to who I am as a musician because it, you have to be able to share your emotions through your music as well. What makes for great principal oboe playing? It's something that I struggled with earlier in my life, and that's positive leadership. As an as a principal oboist, you know, I, I think this for just about anyone's parts. But one of the things, like I was saying, that I learned was it's when I first went to Philadelphia was it's not just about knowing your part in the music anymore. You have to know everyone's parts around you. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to know the playbook better than anyone else when you're the principal oboe player. As far as I'm concerned, principal oboe players like being a quarterback. You know, you're not responsible for – a wide receiver is only responsible for running their route. You're responsible for knowing every single wide receiver's route uh, when you play principal oboe. You have to know everything. You have to be a leader in the section. Um, and that's, I think, 
some people it comes natural. Some people uh, have to really work at being able to lead. I, I really had to work at it because the way I led was not a positive way early in life. Um, communication with your colleagues is, is vital. Po- uh, un- being able to communicate and, and, you know, not offend, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a skill that takes time to learn when you talk to people about, you know, what can we do to make something better? And it involves more than just yourself because you don't want to offend someone else's musical ability either. You want to, you know, you want to learn from their abilities as well. And maybe in the process, learn more about your part because of what they're, they're showing you in theirs. Um, I think with uh, playing, being a principal level player, the other thing is just your responsibility to show up prepared every single rehearsal. You're, you're the first thing that everyone listens to once you tune. You're the, you're the, you're the, the first thing the audience is going to really hear by yourself. You're the stability of the orchestra from the get-go. And if you aren't prepared for that, how can you expect other, other people to, to be prepared for it? If you don't have a good sense of pitch, if you're not able to play in tune, how do you expect other people to take you seriously when you're tuning the orchestra? Um, there's, there's so many things that go into it. You know, one of the things I sit down with my students and do, I mean, I've had lessons with students where I'm just like, we're just working on playing a concert A, yeah. you know, because if you can't give a concert A, yep. no one's going to, you don't want to be that oboe player. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be the, you don't want to be the oboe player that hits the A 30 cents sharp and then yeah. brings it all the way back down. You know, it sounds like an airplane taking a dive bomb. Um, but I, I think, you know, just due to the repertoire, due to, uh, you know, the, the position of where you sit, dead center in the middle of the orchestra, you're, 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 you have a responsibility to be, to be over-prepared. Um, and like I said, this is an opinion, and I think everyone's going to have their opinions about this, and I respect that. I respect if people disagree with my opinion. But strong leadership, I think, is one of the most important things in an oboe player, or a principal oboe player. What is a favorite past memory of a performance that you've had? Uh, I mean, I've, there's a lot of performances that I've, I've cherished greatly. Um, probably uh, two, two come to mind. Uh, so I'll give you both of them. Uh, one that comes to mind was the last performance that I really ever had with some of my colleagues from Curtis. And that was actually at Aspen in 2004. It was my last concert there and we closed with Scheherazade. And, you know, Scheherazade gets, you know, the reputation for being overplayed. And, <laughs> but it's still a beautiful piece of music. And just to be able to play that, that piece, the beautiful lines that come from it, and know that, gosh, there's people in this orchestra that I went to school with for three or four years, and I might never play with them again. It was just a very surreal moment. Uh, I, I'm not generally a person that cries very often. Um, my wife likes to tell me, you didn't cry at our wedding, but you cried when Jerome <laughs> Bettis got initiated into the hall of fame. So, um, but I remember, I remember just shedding tears on the stage after that show. And just, it was just a very special moment. Uh, performance wise about, I think it was two years ago. I played the flower clock with uh, Michael Stern and the Iris orchestra. And that was just uh, for me, a very big highlight. Uh, it, it, it let me know what well, being asked to do it. First of all, was just uh, a, a true joy and a true, uh, I, I, can't be more grateful for the opportunity to, to have been able to play with, uh, play with that orchestra and play a concerto and sit there. And, you know, my colleagues, I'm very fortunate that there's two people in the orchestra that I went to school with who are to this day, two of my best friends, 
shout out to Adrian uh, Bordion, the soonest of Dorian. The guy's like a brother to me and uh, just love him to death. And But to be able to play something like that and on stage, your best friends are, are backing you up and supporting you. Gosh, there's nothing that feels more, feels better than that. Like, you know, we talk about nerves and dealing with anxiety, you know, and word to anyone listening to this, anyone who tells you they don't get nervous on stage is completely full of it. (laughs) Everyone gets nervous. Everyone cares about what they're doing and everyone cares about how it's being perceived. But I tell you in that moment, in that performance, it was one of those moments where I, once again, just everything I don't want to say zoned out, but I felt so uplifted by the community of my friends and the people that I've been performing with. I I will cherish that moment for the rest of my life. That sounds really special and so lovely. And now I'm wondering if there is a different kind of special memory that you could share with us of maybe something embarrassing or humiliating that has happened on stage. Um, uh, So I'm going to, when I say this, I, gosh, I, I don't I cannot think of any moment on stage where I have felt utterly humiliated or like this oh my gosh this went so wrong. Um I hope I have my job tomorrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't think of any specific moments like that, but I do have I guess a funny story. Um it. and this was probably one of the most nervous moments of my music musical career. About 5 years ago I was playing Peter and the Wolf. And we had Martin Short mm, sweet, narrating. Uh, and he was narrating as Ed Grimm from the old Saturday Night Live. Uh, like he was in full character. <laughs> During the performance, he tried to grab the concertmaster's violin, which is a $300,000 instrument. Uh, he slid the, I can't remember, whoever was on the back of the second violins. He took their chair and them, slid them completely off stage. <gasps> uh we had a violist who, and I, I, gosh, I can't remember his name, but the guy's about six five, six six. During the cat scene, Martin tried to climb out the viola player, like the tree. And it, the audience is loving it. The audience is eating it up. I'm <laughs> freaking out um, because he he comes and stands between myself and the bassoonist right before we're right before I'm about to play that really crazy lick. Uh, yeah. Beyond, bomb, bomb, beyond, bomb, 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 you know, and I'm like, oh my God, don't touch me, don't touch me. <laughs> I, I, I wish, I wish I could have the recording of this concert because I know I'm saying it out loud. I know I am. I'm like holding the oboe, getting ready to play, and at the same time, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me. Um, and it was just the most nerve-wracking thing. The audience absolutely loved it. And when you do stuff like that, you know, you have to, you have to realize that the, that showmanship is part of the show, but, oh my gosh, I was just waiting for the the worst possible thing to happen. Uh, I was was like, for all I know, he's going to take the oval out of my hands and try to do it himself. I I really didn't know. (laughs) You had don't touch me as a neon flashing sign (laughs) above your head. I kid you not. As I'm saying, my hands, everything is shaking because I'm like, what's going to happen? Um, I, I, if, if, if someone if someone needed their house painted, I would have been I could have mixed all their paint right then. And there. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! That's funny. Yeah, I don't think the union has like a, a Martin Short clause in <laughs> the contract. Well, 
I just remember staring at the conductor the whole time uh, and just I've got like one eyebrow that's about to fall off my face because it's so high up on my forehead and I just have this look of dude I'm so mad right now <laughs> but you know it's the sp- spontaneity is, uh, is part of the part of the job sometimes and you just you roll with the punches so <laughs> Thanks for sharing. That was incredible. (laughs) What advice would you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Be organized. Start realizing how much practicing you're going to have to do. Make sure that you really love what you do um, and that you're willing to work towards it. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who think that, you know, oh, I love this. I'm going to make a career out of it. But then they don't realize the amount of work that goes into it. And you can easily burn out. You know, I, like I said, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a performer to a certain extent uh, when I was coming out of high school, but I knew I wanted to do something in music. And, uh, you know, my high school students, I, I don't, you know, I don't take uh, a lot of high school students on, but I do take a couple. One of the first things I've discussed with them is what life was like for me in high school um, uh, as an oboist and as a person trying to, you know, possibly look for scholarship for, you know, for college and, and, look towards the first uh, foundations of, of, a, of a future in music. Um, and to young musicians, uh, my, you know, I'll just give you my typical day. Um, you know, my, my senior year in high school, I would get up at 5.30 in the morning. I would be out the door at 6.30 for a 7 o'clock uh, college-level sociology, psychology class that I was taking. I would go about my day. Um, and around 1.30, I'd be finished with, with high school for the day. Because back, at least when I was in high school, seniors were given a choice. You could have early dismissal, which meant you would leave school early, or late arrival. Well, I had early dismissal. Uh, I lived about five minutes from my high school. I'd drive home, and I'd practice for about an hour and a half. And then I'd come back up to high school for marching band practice in the fall and wind ensemble practice in the spring, competition wind ensemble. And I would do that from 3.30 to 6 o'clock. Then I'd go back home. I would eat dinner with my family. I might watch a little something on TV. Back then, Friends was the big deal. So everyone watched Friends. The, uh, and the, about uh, 8 o'clock, I'd go up to my room. And I'd practice for another hour and a half or so. Uh, then I would do any homework that I needed to do. Uh, if I didn't think I could get it done in the morning while I was sitting there waiting for class to start. Yeah, I was that kid too. (laughs) (laughs) And after, after homework, I would practice for about another hour and then I'd sit there and work on read making until about one o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, I started making reads when I was about 14 years old, uh, about a year into playing the oboe. Um, I had a high school teacher. Like I said, when I started studying with Jennifer Sperry in Charlotte, she told me after my first lesson with her, you're done buying reeds. And I was like, well, what, what do you mean? How am I going to play the oboe? Um, she's like, you're, you're going to start making your reeds. And I will adjust them, but you are not going to buy reeds anymore. Good for her. So, and I have this philosophy with, with my students as well. Um, you know, sometimes to make progress, you have to take a step back. And I'm a firm believer in that. And every oboist who wants to be an oboe player wants to be a professional musician needs to know how to make reads. Mm -hmm. And if you're sitting there waiting until you're like right, right on the doorstep of college to start figuring out how to tie a read, you're behind. It's the bottom line. 
you're behind and you're not re- you're not prepared for where you need to be, especially if you're choosing music as your profession. I was pretty read uh, efficient by the start of my junior year in high school. I would say just about every single read I played on, I made or my teacher had touched up. I think I had one one read I can remember in Brevard during the summer. All of my we know everyone here. Have y'all y'all been to Brevard? Mm-hmm. I said, you know what the weather's like there. It's <laughs> terrible. Yes. <laughs> um, and I I woke up one morning the day of a concert and I had no reads. So I was like, what happened? Uh, and, I, and Eric was kind enough to give me a read for a concert. That's mm-hmm. the only that's the only read I can think of that I did not make from about the age of fifteen through college that I played on. Um, and while that's like I said, uh, that might seem a bit much for students. If you're looking at a professional career as an oboist, this is a big part of it. And if you're if you're putting it off, you're only hurting yourself. And it's it's independence. It's yes. And I I I enjoy read making ninety percent of the time. <laughs> There's ten percent of it, and usually when I get that ten percent, it's also I've always found that with read making. Sorry, I'm kind of segueing a little bit here. I've always found with read making. My read, I feel good about read making when I'm happy and I'm positive. If I have to go into read making after, I don't know, a bad experience or something, or let's just say your emotions play into read making. Um, Because if you're not in a good mood, chances of you making a good read or or, or being focused to the extent that you need to be, Mm -hmm. it's not going to happen probably. Um, So, you know, I always try to approach read making when I'm at my happiest. And it's it's usually a, a a decent and you know a decent hour or two at the table. So, um, but that that would be you know my advice to anyone uh, and even young college students. Get yourself organized and that routine that I just talked about. I did that routine every single day, every single day. The only day of the week that was different for me was Sunday because that was youth orchestra and family. And I I did take time on Sunday to spend time with family once I was done with youth orchestra. Reed, thank you so, so much for being on Double Reed Dish. This has been such a wonderful conversation and we really can't thank you enough for sharing this hour with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you all so much for having me. I hope I haven't overstepped or said anything too offensive in the last hour. (laughs) No, it's great. So I know that I can get on some rants sometime. Same. Um, but I'm very appreciative for the opportunity to speak with y'all. Uh, look forward to hopefully uh, working with y'all in person down the road. That would be wonderful. We hope you enjoyed that interview and that episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find us anywhere that you get your podcasts and at our website, Double Read Dish, and we're everywhere that you could need us on social media. On the next episode, we have a fantastic interview with Michael Burns, professor of bassoon at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go eat cheese. And make wreaths. <laughs> <laughs>